0: Let's focus our attention together on these beautiful words from the book of 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If we say we love God, yet hate a brother or sister, we are liars. For if we do not love a fellow believer whom we have seen, we cannot love God whom we have not seen. And he has given us his commandment, those who love God must also love one another. The word of the Lord.
1: I have the pleasure this morning of introducing you to a friend, Stephen Richards. He is a fellow uh, Presbyterian Homes chaplain. And I met him first uh, several months ago, and we have just a little bit of a gathering time every once in a while, all the chaplains across the Twin Cities in Iowa and Wisconsin. And being all pastors, of course, you know, everyone always has a story that's better than someone else's, right? We all acknowledge that. So we introduce new chaplains by asking them this question. Tell us three things about yourself that will impress us. And we laugh and we joke, but this friend Stephen, when he was about to do that, shared his story about growing up in the church and walking away from that story, actually, and living with atheism as his main belief for over 20 years. No one could top that story, but even more so, everyone was interested in hearing it. And I'm so glad that this morning he's here to be part of our Story Matters series. And he's going to share his story. And before he does that, I'm going to read to you from Jesus' words in Luke 15. He's telling the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and then the lost son. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together with all that he had and set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country, and he sent him to the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. While he was still a long ways off, his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, and bring a ring and put it on his finger and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What is going on? My brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come home. Safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father Look, for all of these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat to celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are already with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. Stephen, please come and share with us your
2: story. I want to put this down here. Jesus sat down when he spoke is as close as I can get to sitting down. So I'm, I like the fact that you think my story is interesting. Wait until you hear the story of how I met my wife. <laughs> yeah, that was a story of me passing through Minneapolis Airport to get a connecting flight on the way to meet another woman in Utah. Hmm. So, you can ask me about that later on. So, I've been asked here today to share the story of how I lost my faith uh, and spent 20 years as an atheist. And then returned to my faith in 2016. And I know that's kind of an unusual story in many respects. And I've often thought that my story follows the the track of the younger son, minus a few gratuitous details. Essentially, I left home and lived a life I came to regret. I came to my senses and then I returned home again. And that really is the track of the story in The the Prodigal Son, if you read up to the end of the point where the son comes home. But I've begun to reflect on uh, more of that story in the context of the, the father, the behavior of the father and the older son. And that's what I want to get to a little later on. But before I get there, Let's, uh, let's unpack a little bit of that story. Now, as you can tell from my accent, I'm from Wisconsin. Not really. <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually did convince somebody once that I was actually from Wisconsin, and I was an actor practicing an English accent for a play. <laughs> Um, I'm from England. I'm born and raised in London, and I moved here in 2005 because I got married. People ask why on earth you come to Minnesota. Well, I got married, and uh, 15 years of winters later, I'm still here. In 1982, age 14, I became what is known as a born-again Christian, making a personal decision to follow Jesus, And in 1984, I was baptized as a believer. For 10 years, I got really involved in a small evangelical church in London. I was involved in evangelistic activities. I played an active role in leading the youth work. I was elected a deacon. I was preaching. I was leading people to faith in Christ. I was really involved. In in fact, I think you could argue that I was on my way to becoming an assistant pastor in that church. And so, I felt God was calling me to do good things and in 1994 I felt God was leading me to do two years theological training in seminary with the idea of becoming a missionary in Brazil and it was all going very well. It seemed my life was on track and God was leading me to new things. The the church sent me off with their blessing and off we go. However, at I began to be exposed to lots of different ways of thinking about lots of different ways of doing faith, and that's not a terrible thing. But the problem for me is that it destabilized me. For most of my fellow students, academia was challenging, but it wasn't devastating. For me, it led to too many unanswered questions, increasing doubts, a lack of certainty, and eventually a collapse of my faith. Lots of people say, oh, we shouldn't have gone to college. Terrible thing to have done that, to have studied all that theology. Well, some people do actually say that to me. But the truth is, it was all self-induced. You see, I'd been very zealous in my Christian faith up to that point. I'd been really sure of what I'd believed. And I could tell you what I believed with a passion. My mum tells a story of how I used to walk around the house with a Bible tucked under my arm, telling her how she was going to hell. That's how zealous I was. She had to call my pastor around to talk me down because I was that zealous. I knew what I believed, and nobody could take that away from me. But the reality was is that whilst I had these truths that I I held on to, I'd never really dug down into them. I'd never really questioned. My faith had been about accepting What I'd been told to believe was the truth, and that was it. At college, I'd also begun to see that the faith that I'd been taught had been largely grounded in puritanical thinking and repressive thinking. It was very judgmental. It created divisions between people, between me and my family. I still live with the effects of that time. Even now, I live in judgment. I find judgment is my go-to place when I get stressed out, and I identify that back to the theology I lived in. I came to feel trapped. My faith had become a prison cell. I was losing the ability to breathe. On top of that, I was being blown about by all manner of new ways of thinking, and it fell around me. It felt like a house of cards. In the end of At the end of two years of college, I walked away from my faith. I walked away from church. I walked away from friendships. And I walked away essentially from my future. And I was lost. I was the lost son. In 1996, I spiritually left home. Now, you might say, well, why didn't you stay in your church? Why didn't you try and work things out? Well, I guess I could have done that. But really, there was no one there that could help me and was prepared to help me. They wanted me to come back to where I was. They wanted me to come back to the truth as they knew it. Once you get get labelled as a backslider, it's hard to sit in that community again. You lose a lot of opportunities. So I walked away, I saved myself the heartache. I walked away and spent 20 years without God in my life. You know, in Luke 4, when Jesus criticizes the beliefs and practices of those in his home synagogue. They attempted to throw him off a cliff. Mark, I often say that a good sermon is when your congregation are ready to throw you off a cliff, because that's when you've preached the truth. But the reality is, is that I still don't find church a safe place. Even though I love church, I still find there's a lot of judgment in church. We're supposed to be a different community. And I sometimes wonder whether we are. I think there's too many people that feel they've got it all sorted out. There's too many angry brothers. My deepest concern is that anyone here who is struggling with any faith issue would never feel the way I did, would never feel that their only choice is to walk out the door and never come back. I hope that you feel that you can have an open and honest conversation about where you are with personally, where you personally are at with God, and that you will still feel accepted and welcomed without fear that you're going to get cast aside. So I left my church and I separated from the faith communities I was involved in. And after that, I guess Paul sums it up best. I spent several years following the desire of flesh and senses The details are boring, but this verse in Romans sums it up. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? So, that's pretty bleak, isn't it? What changed? How did I get from there to standing before you today? Because clearly, there is a connecting piece here. Well, what started to change for me is when I began to reflect on my journey from faith and I made a series of videos for my YouTube channel, and in doing so, I began to lament the things I'd lost. One day, I woke up and came to my senses, because the more I reflected, the more I began to realize that A, I was a mess and making very poor choices and not a good role model for my kids, and B, I'd been missing the good things that were actually there in the past. And I began to realize as I reflected on life that I needed something radically other in my life, something outside the human condition to step in and help me. I've begun to equate my story more with the 12-step program for addicts. One day I realized that my life had become unmanageable, that I needed a power greater than me to restore me to sanity. On my own, I was not making it, and this began my journey back to faith. I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to God as I understood God to be. And it was with this mindset that I began to reflect on my old faith, which, whilst it had not been the best experience for me, had still given me a sense of who I was. It had grounded me, given me a sense of purpose, a sense of hope, a sense that life was not just about being at the mercy of our desires, So in 2016, I chose, I actually chose to put God back into my life. The son chose to go back to the father. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I chose to take another chance with God. And I've done a lot of reflecting on my story of my journey from and back to faith. And the nuts and bolts of it are easy to tell. I've just told you it right there. And I often think it must feel good for some people to hear that, hey, this atheist of 20 years came back to faith. That makes me feel good. Well, of course you're going to come back to the truth. I worry when people say things like that because it sounds codependent. It sounds like I need you to affirm me. I need you to make me feel I'm in doing the right thing, that I'm in the right place. It sounds judgmental. How could you not believe what I believe? You know if you don't believe what I believe? Threats. That's what worries me. When did Jesus issue threats? Our, our most popular verse in the Bible, we like to quote it, is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But we forget John 3.17, for God did not send Jesus to condemn the world. Jesus's strongest words were reserved for those who believed they had it all sorted out, and then weaponized their faith in God against others. You want to know what weaponizing faith looks like? That's what it looks like when we weaponize our faith against others. And the uncomfortable reality about my story is that I found my way back to God in the middle of atheism. I wasn't in church. I wasn't being told anything particular by anybody. I was in the middle of atheism. Didn't believe there was a God. Didn't believe anything about what we believe here, about Jesus. I was in the middle of atheism. I spent a lot of time studying, evaluating, and rejecting all manner of arguments for the existence of God. I read all the arguments. I taught them. I used to be a teacher. I know, why, I know the arguments for and against God's existence, why religion exists, blah, blah, blah. None of this convinced me to turn my life around. There's no watertight argument for anything we believe about God, Jesus, or the Bible. Does that make you angry? It shouldn't, because that's the way it is. In the past, this lack of proof and certainty, had undermined everything for me. But now it became the means by which I found God again. I realized that both atheists and believers live by faith. The atheist lives by faith. I realized it when I tried to find my way out of my head to objective reality, Trying to find my way outside of my head into the world that I believe exists outside of my head. You can't get there. There's too many gaps. You have to presume too many things are going on before you can arrive at a point of certainty. We live by faith, just at the point of knowledge. We can't get outside. I'd struggled with the idea of faith and walked away because it didn't have certainty. And now my uncertainty had become the means by which I returned to God again. And that's when I was ready for a new story. Atheism had stripped away all the problematic metaphysics. It was now me and God, me and Jesus. I liken it to when Jesus called the first disciples by the lake. They had no elaborate theology worked out. They had no rituals they were told to go through. They simply had a sense that Jesus was different. Andrew said to Peter, come here. He went running to him, come. I think I've found the Messiah. They had excitement and how if they took a chance and followed him, their life would be changed forever. And it was. And you know what? Jesus took them on a three year journey when they gradually came to realize more and more of who he was. But more importantly, how they were to relate to God and each other love. Love God. Love each other. I love this verse from Ecclesiastes. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. The less you speak, the better. I love verses like that because it reminds us of the radical otherness of God. God is so very different to us. And yet so often it feels to me like in church we act as if we know it all when it comes to God. Creeds, statements, professions of faith, we've got God nailed down. How many people here think they know everything there is to know about God? That's how we sometimes talk to people. I know it. I've got it sorted out. Romans eleven thirty three. 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are God's judgments and God's paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of God or who has been God's counselor? Who has ever, ever given to God that God should repay them? Psalm 8, verse 4. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Finite beings claiming to know everything about God. You know what the original sin was? Trying to be like God. We put barriers up around God. You've got to do it my way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Really? Really? We have a generation who are walking past the doors of this church. They're not interested in what's going on in here. They're looking at us and they see absolutely nothing they need. And that grieves me because I know the life I experience through my faith in Christ. Jesus Christ has transformed my life in ways I cannot begin to describe how do we introduce others to this life that we know let's turn to the reading just before we end the father i often thought it was about the son it's not it's about the father the father represents god we are to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect we are to be like a god What is the response of the father to the son when he returns? Does he engage in finger-wagging? Does he insist that the son say and do certain things before he's welcomed back? No. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Love. Pure act of love. The son experienced love in the presence of the father. Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That's it. See us, glorify God. Just as when I open my mouth, you know something's different about me, people should look at us and know something's different about us. In Romans 11, Paul says, the church will be cut off by God will wither and die when it is not kind to others. Romans eleven twenty two. It breaks my heart that a generation has looked at the church and instead of seeing the father, they have instead seen the angry brother. Anger, bitterness, judgment, resentment. What a damning indictment of our Christian witness. The people are walking past. They're writing books telling us how much they despise the faith we profess. People are looking at us and going, huh, if that's what Christians are like, then I want nothing to do with that. But let's not end there. Let's end on a hopeful note. You see, the prodigal son is a story intended to teach us something about God's love. And we have a story. We have a story to tell about God's love in our life. We may not be able to answer all the questions people have. We may not be able to logically prove God exists for those who doubt. We may not have answers for those who have walked away, but we can always tell them about what God has done for us and is doing in our life. We can always talk about the love we have experienced and we can always show people the love we have experienced. People will always find ways to logically dismantle our beliefs, but our story can never be taken away from us. It always, will always remain a powerful witness to God's living reality and presence in our lives. Tell your story. Don't get bogged down in the theological debates. Who cares about that? Tell your story. Look for moments where people are revealing their sense of powerlessness and then tell them the story of God's love in your life. As Philip Pullman says, once upon a time is always a more effective instructor than thou shalt not. And I want to encourage you with these words. Never doubt that God is working in the lives of those who profess not to believe. I was 20 years of an atheist and God was working in my life the entire time. Christ invites us all on a journey. There's going to be ups and downs. It's inevitable. Many of them. But the key thing is trust. Trusting that God is always present, always listening, and always willing to welcome people home. Never will I leave you or forsake you. Amen.